Now we'll sing hymn number 86, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And there's just two verses in the hymnal. We'll sing those both together now. Why don't you stand and sing this one? It's a beautiful hymn. Let's stand. Please be seated. <clears throat> Thank you so much, Adam. That was beautiful, brother. I'm <clears throat> grateful. <clears throat> Part of the reason we went ahead and did that one in that location was kind of like last week. I recognized that this hymn is uh, one that's perhaps maybe slightly less familiar than others. And so many of you may know that one by heart. I love and love, uh, deeply love this hymn. But I thought it might be good to have it right before uh, the word which we'll be talking and discussing about this, this hymn this morning. So that's why we placed it right, right where we did. I'm going to invite Megan forwards now who's going to be reading out of Isaiah uh, chapter 61. Just the first three verses which are going to touch on some of the themes in the hymn. Thank you. Merry Christmas morning. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of, of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. 
As we come to the word, let's pray one more time. Lord, we pause before your holy word. It's so easy to just fall into the routine of going through the motions or just going through my notes here and listening or taking notes. But Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to come now as we just sang to reign in us. Come Holy Spirit, open our hearts, open our eyes, our minds, our ears to see and hear and be and do all that you desire of us this morning. Help me to faithfully pass on what you have to say this morning to your people, Lord. Whatever is not of you, may it fall away. But that which is yours, God, I pray, impress it upon your people. May it stick with them all throughout this Christmas season. We're so thankful for these treasures, these hymns that you've given to your church. May we, Lord, treasure up all these things in our hearts and live them out as here in a while we will go from this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we will complete our brief series looking at Advent and Christmas hymns. So far we looked at three. By way of quick review, I really don't intend to repeat myself. I'm just trying to remind us of where we've been and retrace some of our steps. So I'm thankful for you giving me space to do all of that. Even if some of you are like, yeah, yeah, we've heard this two or three times now, Pastor. Well, the first week we pondered, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That hymn focused on, on what? This longing, right? This this desiring after the coming of Jesus again. It remembered a time when Jesus was yet to come, but also looked forward to the day when Jesus would come again. So we talked about that longing. The second week, we took a look at Isaac Watts' very well-known Christmas hymn, Joy to the World. And that great hymn focused on the joy that Jesus' coming brings. All the creation is singing and praising God as it receives her king. And then last week we reflected on a lesser known hymn, Let All Mortal Flesh Keep Silence. And that hymn was more sober and serious in its tone and moved us to consider the earth-shattering fact that the Alpha and the Omega, the Lord God Almighty, had taken on flesh and stepped down into our time and space. In contrast to Watts' hymn, Joy to the World, which uh, calls us to respond with joy to the coming of the Christ child, let all mortal flesh keep silence, calls us to fear and trembling as we ponder these great, great things that God has done. We ponder the presence of our maker and our creator in our world and what that means. Longing, joy, Fear, trembling, these are all responses that these hymns have called us to in the previous weeks. And I've been using an analogy to sort of explain these different responses that I hope has been helpful. Because on the surface of it, these things seem contradictory, don't they? 
How can I respond with joy and fear and trembling and longing? How, how do I do that? Right? Well, does anyone remember that image that I've been putting forward, giving to us as a way of, of kind of thinking about these things? An image was a window, right? I was talking about a house with, with many windows. Each of these hymns might be seen as a different window in the same house. Each window giving you a different view of the same landscape. One view might show you a side of the property where you've got a peaceful stream that's running and bringing about tranquility and peace. <laughs> a second window in the house might give you a vision of there's some of that longing, right? We're talking about <laughs> longing after mama. <laughs> a second window in the house might give you a vision of something like I, I said, like an old tire swing, maybe a place where you have fond memories of, of a loved one who's passed on. And there's, again, that longing and that yearning. Yet still another window in your home might reveal a majestic mountain towering above the landscape, prompting a sense of awe and wonder. Maybe that fear and trembling that we spoke of last week. Well, today, we're looking at the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, which we just sang a moment ago. And what view of this coming deliverer, of this thing that God has done, might our hymn before us today offer? What's the view, the thing that it wants us to see, perhaps? Interestingly, as you read the verses in this hymn, you'll see all of the themes from the previous weeks mentioned in the hymn. And this was not planned by me. It's just kind of a neat, you know, serendipitous kind of thing that discovered along the way here. You'll see longing. That's there in the hymn. You'll see joy there in the hymn. And you'll see a mention of fear even in the hymn. As you read this hymn, you may see something different. Maybe there's something as you read it that you're drawn to, something different from the person next to you, perhaps, and that's okay. But I am drawn to the recurring theme of deliverance. This is what I am drawn to in this hymn. The long-expected Jesus, this rescuer, is one who has come to set his people free. Perhaps the landscape one sees through this window might be something like a landscape of an open field. It's a landscape of wide open spaces where there are fences, but those fences are far and wide. There's room to run and room to wander in peace and freedom and security. This hymn prompts us to ponder the glorious freedom that we are all given in Christ Jesus. But what is this freedom like? What is biblical freedom? We could probably preach for months on this topic. But just a few nuggets I'd like us to see out of the hymn and the scriptures today. What kind of freedom are we offered and given in Christ, this coming rescuer? Charles Wesley, the author of this hymn, is going to show us a few things about this freedom. Before we jump into all of that, let me share with you just a quickly a bit of background about Wesley and this hymn. This hymn was first published in 1744 
in his hymns for the nativity of our Lord. It was a Christmas hymnal. Wesley wrote prolifically many, many hymns. Many of them are ones we've sing in here often. He's a wonderful hymn writer, a very gifted and blessed man of God. And this hymnal on the nativity had 18 Christmas hymns or songs in it. And the story goes with this uh, hymn in particular that Wesley was deeply distressed by the disconnect between the church's belief and the church's practice. The things that the church spoke of that he was a part of at the time, he was a part of the Anglican church, the things that the church spoke of were not being realized in the lives and in the ministry of the, of the people and of the church. The church, which he was a part of, again, the Anglican church, was faithful in its teaching, was orthodox. It was a, a, a solid theologically church. But he did not see lives that were being truly transformed, living out the things that they spoke of and believed. He did not see a church uh, living out its true calling and the world being transformed. And as he meditated on Scripture, I believe it was a passage in Haggai, actually, that he was chewing on when certain thoughts that led to this hymn were prompted. He put this hymn uh, together as he meditated upon those words in Scripture. Well, the hymn remained largely unknown until a very famous preacher came along. A preacher named Charles Spurgeon. Maybe some of y'all have heard Spurgeon before or heard of him. None of us have had the privilege of hearing him. He lived 150 years ago. But he included portions of the hymn in his sermon. And well, in a sermon illustration, he referred to, to this hymn. And suddenly, from that day forward, you begin to see the hymn being published more and more in, in the Church of England and in American hymnals. Today, some hymnals now contain even an additional two stanzas written by Mark E. Hunt, which were inserted in the middle of the hymn. And I've put those in your bulletin in italics in case you want to look at those. So you'll see I've got the full text of the hymn there somewhere in the back, I believe, before the sermon notes. And those central two are in italics. And those were ones that were later on added in the, in the 1990s. But I share Wesley's burden, and perhaps many of you do as well. I look around me and often feel the same things. I look within me and often feel the same things. We speak of glorious things with our mouths, but our lives often do not reflect them. Somewhere there's a disconnect between what we say and what we live and do. And I think this hymn is going to help us a little, perhaps, to diagnose why it is that this disconnect exists. It's going to help us chew on it some. And one of the ways this hymn is going to do that is in the way that it talks about freedom. Here we find three major ideas about freedom in this hymn, or at least there's three that I see. And maybe we could multiply more and more and more if we, if we really wanted and, you know, really... We're, you know, ambitious. We could find more. But but the first one is this. True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. True freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. The twin states, Vermont and New Hampshire, 
Both have mottos that speak of freedom. I'm sure some of y'all could rattle them right off if, uh, if I asked, if I put you on the spot. Our state motto is? Speak up. There it is. Freedom and unity. Good job. New Hampshire is probably more well-known because it's more in your face. There it is. Everybody said that one. Live free or die. Okay. I really like both of these mottos, honestly. I mean, I like the in-your-face feel of the New Hampshire motto, which the story behind that actually is fairly interesting, too. If you go online and look for the story, it's an interesting story. I won't bore you with it here. don't know that I could remember it off the cuff anyways, but look it up online. But I also like the Vermont motto because it recognizes that freedom is something that is lived out in community. Right? It's this, there's this unity aspect which implies others, implies, you know, that, that my freedom has impacts on other people, perhaps, right? I can't use my freedom to destroy someone else's freedom or to take their freedom from them. I like that idea, I think, that's, that's present there. I must be mindful of my neighbor in my exercise of freedom. However, when you look at the lives of the people in our state, and perhaps in New Hampshire as well, I don't know New Hampshireites maybe as well as I do Vermonters, but it doesn't take long to see that freedom is not something we value because it gives us room to do what we ought to do. That's not why we value freedom in Vermont or in New Hampshire. No, we value freedom because it gives us the legal right to do almost whatever we want to do. That is why we like these mottos and freedom in our state. Our definition of freedom today has more to do with self and what self wants than it does with obligations and responsibilities about what one ought to be doing. That is not true freedom, my friends. This is not what freedom is about. Our new definition of freedom is actually a veiled form of slavery. It's a veiled form of slavery. We have legitimized slavery to sin and to self. We're in bondage to our wants, to our sins. To be free to sin is not to be free. To be free to transgress God's law is not to be free. Now hear me. I'm not saying to be, let's be a little nuanced here, okay? I'm not saying we should make all sin illegal. We'd all be in jail, okay? All of us. Any transgression of the law, if it were all illegal, we'd be, all of us would be in prison. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that there's a kind of freedom that is much deeper than the way we speak of freedom today. Today, we speak of freedom as the right to do something, usually what we want to do. True freedom is the ability to do what is right. This is true freedom. To have the power within yourself and and perhaps imply the legal means to do what you ought to do. That is true freedom. That's a huge difference in the way we've defined it today. And there's a lot of theological nuancing that goes into all of that, which I won't be getting into here, but to suffice it to say that there's a kind of freedom that's offered to you and me in Christ 
that's fundamentally different from the kind of freedom spoken about in the Vermont or New Hampshire state mottos. Okay? Christ offers you freedom from spiritual slavery, from slavery to sin. This is the kind of freedom Christ offers. You see, every single one of us was born a slave to sin. And what that means is that our default setting is sin. Think of it this way. When you purchase a new TV at some point, hopefully some of y'all have done this in the last maybe 10 years or so. Maybe there's some that haven't, so maybe I'll be speaking Greek to a few of you. I'm sorry if I am. But whatever new device you think of, maybe it's a watch, maybe it's a phone, TV, at some point you're going to be prompted to set the time zone and the language and all of those things uh, on your device. And from that day forward, your TV will operate based on those settings and it won't deviate until you or someone goes in and changes those settings, right? So if you set it to Spanish, it's going to yap at you in Spanish until you change it, right? You get what I'm saying? Maybe some of you have made that mistake before on your TV and it's talking in Spanish to you and you're like, whoa, let you speak Spanish. Our setting from the very moment we are conceived is sin. If you imagine a sin setting, right? A brokenness setting, a tendency to do wrong setting. And what that means is that everything we do is tainted by that, okay? It's got this stain on it. Our desires, our thoughts, our intentions, our motives, and our actions are all stained with that sin. That doesn't mean we can't ever do anything correctly or right. That's not what it means. But it does mean that nothing we, we do is truly and most deeply good in the sight of God because it's all tainted by sin. Everything we do, because it's hardwired in, it's programmed in to our nature until someone comes in and reprograms it and sets the setting different. Changes the default off of sin and onto something else. Righteousness. Goodness, godliness, whatever. And there's only one person in the entire universe that can do that reprogramming, that knows how to get into your TV, into your system, and change it. And that person is Jesus Christ. This is what Wesley is getting at in the opening lines of our hymn. Come thou long expected Jesus, born to set thy people free. From our fears and sins release us. Let us find our rest in thee. We're captive to our sins. We're we're held captive. We're slaves to them until we are released by Jesus. This long expected Jesus. True freedom is to be released from the slavery and bondage to sin. Now, one thing this means for you and me is that everything that is legal is not therefore good, okay? I want us to think about this. We are free to do all kinds of things, but you must think a bit more deeply about whether or not your actions are proceeding from true freedom in Christ or are you living out of slavery to sin? Think about this as you're doing things. There are things that every single one of us probably do on a daily basis that are acceptable, culturally speaking, but are immoral and do not please the Lord. We're free to do them. 
so that it, people don't bat eyes at it because we're not breaking the law. But it's still wrong in the sight of God. And many of these things, again, we are free to do so they don't raise eyebrows, but they come out of a place of sin. We're still locked into sin in our hearts. I want you to think more deeply about these these things. And there's lots of nuance there, because how is it that we're, Christ sets us free, we still struggle with sin and all that stuff? We won't dabble into that this morning because that would take quite a bit of time. But the main thing I wanted you to see was this. The first thing, true freedom is freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. That's my big point there, number one. Okay, And Christ sets us free from sin. That's what it means to be set free by him. Second thing we see is that true freedom is something that is given by God. It comes from God. No government can give you true freedom. True freedom is something only offered by God and something only given by God. Our country's founders winked at this idea in the Declaration of Independence when they said that God endowed us with certain rights, right, that are inalienable is the word they used, and that governments should be formed to protect those rights which come from God and are given to us by God, not by the government. Government should protect those rights, right? They don't give them to us. We're, we have them because we're made in the image of God and so on. However, even if governments, this is my little point that I'm trying to draw out here from what um, is, I think, in our, in our passage and in the hymn. Even if governments protect the rights of its citizens, listen, it still cannot provide the kind of freedom that Wesley is talking about in this hymn. They can't give you that true freedom. They can give you space to legally do, perhaps, things that you desire to do, but it's not giving you, they can't grant you the kind of freedom that Wesley is talking about or that as Isaiah is talking about in his prophecy. So if you've got your, uh, it might be in the bulletin, open your bulletin or your Bible, Isaiah 61. Let's glance at verse 1 again really quick. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now, on the surface, if you just read that, that uh, those verses there right on the surface, it would appear that the Messiah, which this, this passage is talking about, came to bring political freedom and financial prosperity and and health set people free right it says good news to the poor bind up the brokenhearted health wealth prosperity what's on the surface it seems like but when we get to the new testament and we read read the words of the messiah himself his teaching his life whom he actually quoted this passage in luke chapter four he goes up into the synagogue one day reads it, and then says these remarkable words. This is fulfilled in your hearing, he said. What? What? We find that that prophecy was speaking of something much deeper. I mean, Jesus himself, the one to whom these things were pointing, was not wealthy. He was rejected. Right? He had a hard life. Right. He 
suffered a great deal. When Jesus read this passage in his synagogue that day, he declared that the prophecy had been fulfilled in their hearing. He didn't mean that suddenly all the people who were in, in jail were set free. He, he didn't mean that suddenly all the debts were canceled, that suddenly, you know, all the money was being distributed to the poor. That's not what he meant because that didn't happen. What he meant was that he came to liberate people spiritually in the heart from sin. He came to pay their sin debt. To set them free so that they could do what they ought to do. What was right. What was good before God. He came to give the poor a spiritual inheritance. Because I tell you, there are millions, hundreds of millions of Christians across this world who are still living in abject poverty. What's their hope? Not that somebody's going to come around and give them money. That Jesus is going to make them wealthy. Their hope is in heaven. I've got an inheritance where moth and rust can't destroy it and take it away. Nothing can take it from me because Jesus has it. He has secured it for me. He, in fact, is my inheritance. That is their hope. Now, it's not to say we shouldn't try and lift people out of poverty. So don't hear me wrong, okay? But that's not the hope. He came to be all of those things, to be our freedom, to be our comfort, our good news, our wealth. This is the sense in which Christ sets us free. And until the coming of Jesus, the entire world was trapped in this program of sin. And Felicia, did you happen to get that image that I put in the Dropbox? I didn't, need, I didn't alert you to that. I'm sorry. It was kind of a last minute thing. If, if you find it there, it's uh, Eve and Mary, if you're able to pull that up. But until the coming of Jesus, the entire world was trapped in this program of sin, this slavery to this sin. That was the default for every single person who ever lived. Sorry, I couldn't find a really. There we go. Great. <clears throat> this image captures what Jesus did, the, this, the way in which he sets us free. Do you get what's going on here? The figure on the left is Eve, who has done what? Sinned, broken the commandment, eaten the forbidden fruit. She's downcast. She's sorrowful. Around her leg has ensnared her is the serpent, the devil. He's tricked her, lied to her. Of course, Adam, her husband as well, has done this. But who's on the right? This is Mary. And she's pregnant with who? With Jesus. Eve's eyes are upon Mary's womb. Mary comforts her because she knows that one is coming. Who's going to do what? Who's going to crush the serpent's head and defeat the devil, the serpent, the snake. This is where our hope is. This was going to reverse the curse. This coming deliverer in Mary's womb, Jesus, was the one who was going to set us free once and for all, finally from sin and death and the curse that we're all under. I just love that image. It's so, so profound. There's so much there. Only in this baby can we be free. 
Only in Jesus can we be given a new nature. Only through faith in Christ can we be made new. Only in Jesus can our programming be changed. Jeremiah, like Isaiah, spoke of this day. He says in Jeremiah 32, these words, listen to this. And they shall be my people, and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way, that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This speaks of that new day that has come now in Christ. In the immediate circumstance, Jeremiah was pointing towards a day when Israel would be brought back out of exile and back to the land of Israel. But that was just a foretaste of something greater that was coming. That this promised deliverer would come and would do these things, make a new covenant with the people of God. And that new covenant would not be written on stone, but would be written on our hearts. We would have hearts of flesh and we would be set free from our slavery to sin, our bondage to sin. Only in Jesus can we be set free. If you have not come to Christ, I invite you, come to him today. This is not something you can do on your own. You cannot set yourself free from sin. You have to come, bow the knee, submit to Jesus, invite him into your life. Say, I want to follow you, Lord. And his promise is that he will set you free. And that leads us to the third point about true freedom. True freedom comes from being ruled by Christ. All right, so I intentionally put it in a hopefully interesting way, right? Uh, True freedom comes from being ruled by Christ. Jesus Christ is not just a deliverer come to rescue us from sin, come to set us free to be the lords of our own destiny. No, he doesn't set us free and then just, all right, go do whatever. No. By definition, right, freedom is to do what we ought, to be responsible to the things we're called to do and to follow in the way that is right and good. And we can't do that on our own. Jesus Christ is not just a rescuer or deliverer. He is also a ruler, a king. He is the true king spoken of in that prophecy in Micah that we read earlier. And he has come to rule his people. This is not something we like as Americans. At least those of us in here who are Americans. I think if we're being honest, we can admit that we bristle at the idea of being under anyone. We think of having a king as a bad thing, a terrible thing. If there is a king that we would want, it would be like the kings and queens of the the modern British monarchy, right? Who are basically just figureheads and drive down the road and wave at us and we, yeah, whatever. We're going to go do what we want to do, right? (laughs) That kind of king sounds good to us Americans. But that is not what Jesus is. Jesus is a king with absolute power and authority, and he has come to rule over us. His last words to us in Matthew 28 were what? All authority has been given to me on heaven and earth. This is a king with all authority. 
Wesley picks up on this again in this beautiful hymn. Look at that second verse there, not the ones in italics, but the the original, the final verse there. Born thy people to deliver, born a child and yet a king, born to reign in us forever. Now thy gracious kingdom bring. By thine own eternal spirit, rule in all our hearts alone. By thine all-sufficient merit, raise us to thy glorious throne. It's beautiful. What Wesley is picking up on again here is that true freedom and being ruled are not at odds. In fact, the two go very much together. If we are to be truly free, then we need a good ruler. We need someone not just to reign on the throne in heaven, but someone to reign on the throne in our hearts to help us, guide us, empower us, enable us, strengthen us. And that is precisely what Jesus has come to do through his Holy Spirit. When you come and bow the knee to this king, you are given his Holy Spirit who comes to live in your heart. And what you are doing in that moment is submitting yourself to his rule and his reign. You're confessing that your first allegiance is to him, not to a flag or to an earthly king or ruler or government, but to him. And in submitting to him, you are embracing a creed of true freedom, a freedom that's greater than any nation or any set of earthly laws. Wesley, in this hymn, has diagnosed, I think, what is so much of our problem here today in our land why there's such a disconnect between what we speak of as a church and what we see in the lives of the people of the church. And I think so many of us, perhaps speaking maybe at times even for myself here, we're focused on the wrong battle. Maybe we're more concerned with politics and and our earthly laws than we are the things of the heart, the things that are happening in here I long for our land to be a place of true freedom as it once was, not just in its laws, but in its spirit. I love my country, warts and all. I won't apologize for that, though people in the media want me to. I'm not apologizing. I love America. Okay? (laughs) Praise God. But America is deeply flawed, and it has lost its heart in so many ways. And I think it's because we've, speaking for the church, Perhaps we've lost, we've got the wrong focus at times, right? We need to be focused on the spiritual war, the war that is happening inside, and maybe not as much on the external battles in the political realm, perhaps. I recognize what I'm trying to say, and maybe not doing a great job of it, is that True freedom is more than just having laws that protect our rights. Okay, that's what I'm trying to say. True freedom is something that is given by God. It's an inward freedom first. And in that sense, Americans are not free. Very few of us are, I will say. In the words of Wesley, true freedom releases us from our sins. And gives us hearts that want what God wants and desires what God desires. Not just to do whatever we want to do. Massive difference. We can have legal rights and freedoms all day long and still be slaves to sin. And this is what I see 
in our land and in our community here uh, today and even in the church, sadly. We must regain a better understanding of what it means to truly be free. The babe in Bethlehem was born to set us free. And if he sets you free, you will be free indeed. No matter where you live, what nation you hail from, or who you are. And one day, this is our hope in the present time, he will bring in a perfect kingdom. And he returns a second time where the laws will be perfect. Every heart will be pure and desire what is right and just and good. We look forward to that coming kingdom this morning. Amen. Now I'll invite Adam forwards again to lead us in joy to the world. I'm going to pray as he comes up. Feels like that was kind of heavy and dense. So let's pray as we transition into song. Lord, we, we recognize, I think all of us here, a sense of maybe a heaviness. At least I'm feeling heavy as we preach these things. It was not my desire for that to be a, a heavy message, but I think it's a sobering one that we, where we realize that maybe there's more to this thing than we thought. And that maybe even though we speak of being free as a nation, or there's so much more to it than that, you desire that we be free in the inward place, in our hearts to be free from sin, not free to sin, but free from it. Lord God, I pray that we would be free from sin, that we would live free from the shackles and bondage of our fleshly, earthly desires, and that we would live to follow you and what you desire of us, Lord, and that that would be contagious and that many in our community would come to understand these things. And then our state and our region and our nation and our world, that is our longing and our deep prayer and our desire. And because Jesus has come, we have hope that that is possible for nothing will be impossible with God. And so we can lift our voices in joy as we hope upon these things and hope upon him. In his name we pray. Amen.